Until I see what I say. The Green Notebook, carried by military leaders around the world. Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs, and the hard-won lessons of life. Lessons worth sharing. Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Today's episode is sponsored by Emblem Athletic. The best option out there for keeping your unit looking amazing with custom shirts, hoodies, and other gear. They're a veteran-owned business that specializes in making it easy for you. And if you've ever ordered unit gear, you know how difficult it can be. Emblem knows you have better things to do than design gear, collect money, and worst of all, sort through a bunch of shirts. Emblem takes care of everything, including, get this, free shipping worldwide. When it comes to something like a deployment shirt, you know you're going to have this for the rest of your life. So trust Emblem to deliver the best, guaranteed. Visit www.emblemathletic.com to get started with a free online store today. Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm your host, Joe Byerly, and this week we're diving into the notebook of Donald Robertson. Donald is a cognitive behavioral psychotherapist who has been researching and applying stoicism to his work for over two decades. He's also the author of several books to include one of my favorites, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, The Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius. In this episode, he's going to talk about the history and philosophy of Stoicism and why it has relevance for us today. And I'd also like to take this opportunity to share the news that I'll be joining Donald Robertson, Ryan Holiday, Nancy Sherman, and retired Lieutenant Generals H.R. McMaster and Frank Kearney for the Stoicon X Military Conference subtitled Courage, Honor, and Stoicism on May 15th. I'll be speaking about the power of reflection for military leaders. The conference will be a virtual event, and I'll include the link in the show notes for this episode. So I hope you enjoy listening to this episode, and please welcome to the show, my friend, Donald Robertson. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Donald, I'd first like to start off by saying that your book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, The Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius, was really the book that introduced me to the philosophy of Stoicism. And so the first question I have for you today is that a lot of people get Stoicism with a capital S and Stoicism with a a lowercase s or or having a stiff upper lip mixed up. So could you explain what Stoicism is, the philosophy of Stoicism? Yeah. So historically, Stoicism is a school of Greek philosophy founded in 300 BC. And I think something that's useful to know about it is that it's very heavily influenced by the earlier philosophy of Socrates. So I think of Socrates and the Stoics as being kind of like cousins, as it were, or Socrates is the sort of godfather of Stoicism. And it survived, it flourished in the ancient world for about 500 years, a long time in Greece and then subsequently in Rome. So it's a big philosophy with many aspects and it evolved a bit over time. But the central teaching of Stoicism is relatively straightforward. It's actually an ethical teaching. And it's this idea that virtue or qualities in our own character are the only thing that's truly intrinsically good. And that external things, 
the things that people normally value, like wealth and reputation and property and stuff, are neither intrinsically good nor bad. They're just kind of useful. They provide us with opportunities to do good or bad things. And so the Stoics want us to look at the world from a very different moral perspective, to take a lot more responsibility for things and to be less hung up on things like wealth and reputation. And that has a psychological consequence. So if you think about it, somebody who really, really believes that and embraces those values is going to be more able to endure deprivation or loss of the external things that other people value. So right from the outset, people realized that Stoicism held out this promise, not only of a a different worldview, but of helping us to develop greater psychological resilience and mental health. And so for that reason, Stoicism has become very popular in the field of modern psychotherapy. And it's the philosophical inspiration, in fact, for modern cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the leading evidence-based form of modern psychotherapy. So, Donald, this philosophy that came about, you know, over 2,300 years ago has survived the Greeks, the Romans, and is continuing to gain popularity today. Why do you think Stoicism has this staying power? I think one of the reasons that Stoicism has continued to be popular And actually, you could go right back to the beginning and say, how come Stoicism was so popular in ancient Greece? And then it made the transition to Rome. How come the Romans liked it as well? How come it survived throughout all the centuries in the ancient world? And I think part of the answer to that is that Stoicism is a relatively simple philosophy. And central teaching is kind of abstract in a way. So it's a very basic, it's very fundamental moral teaching that could apply to any situation in life. So it's kind of abstract. It's a virtue ethic, as we say. The Stoics want to say that the main thing in life is a type of moral wisdom and external things are only of secondary or kind of relative importance. Well, that philosophy makes sense in ancient Greece and Athens. It makes sense in the Roman Empire. And it makes sense today when people are living in the age of the internet because it's broad and generic and high level enough that it would apply across a wide range of different historical circumstances and situations. And I think Stoicism has gone through a renaissance in popularity, you know, over recent decades for a number of reasons. And so the things that I hear people saying are very simply, number one, they see Stoicism as like a Western alternative to Buddhism. So they're intrigued by and they're kind of drawn to Buddhism and Hinduism and stuff. But they see Stoicism as something that's a bit like that, but more consistent with Western cultural norms and values. It's more kind of familiar to them in a way. And they see Stoicism as like a secular alternative to Christianity. So it does some of the things that Christianity does. It gives us a moral worldview and sense of direction in life. But it's not based on faith or revelation. It's just based on philosophical reasoning So for that reason, it applies to people that are maybe more agnostic or more skeptical about religion. They say that they like Stoicism also because it's like academic philosophy, but it's simpler, more practical and more down to earth. And also people say they like Stoicism because it's a bit like cognitive therapy, but it's deeper and broader in scope and more permanent and lifelong. 
So cognitive therapy is really a bunch of techniques or strategies, and it's usually time limited. If you were to take some of the basic ideas of cognitive therapy and turn them into a whole philosophy of life, well, you probably end up with something that looks a little bit like stoicism anyway. So those are some of the reasons that people tell me that they're drawn to stoicism. And I think another reason that people say now is a lot of people, maybe particularly young people, feel overwhelmed by the media and news media and the social media, uh, bombarded with too much information, more information we can easily digest about world events that are beyond their direct control and are phrased in such a way that they're designed to be alarming, uh, to grab our attention, to frighten us and make us angry. Because throughout the ages, that's often been how things like the media work. In ancient Greece, the sophists were notorious for doing that. They'd whip up people's emotions, these successful celebrity orators, and they'd compete to get the biggest crowds by saying the most sensational things. Well, nowadays it's CNN and Fox News and Breitbart and, you know, or just social media, Facebook and Twitter that are always competing to get our attention by saying crazy, alarming things, trying to freak us out so that we pay more attention to them. And so I think a lot of people feel that they need to protect themselves psychologically and emotionally against this deluge of rhetoric, propaganda, this flood of information that they don't know how to process and critical thinking and philosophy and stoicism seem to provide an age-old method for inoculating ourselves against this kind of bombardment of rhetoric, which we get nowadays largely from the social media. It, Donald, you and I have talked about this before. You know, it's also gaining steam in the military, which oh, yeah. is how I came across your book. And you know, there's been a, a couple of things that I've posted of yours on the blog. Why do you think it's gained steam in the military? It's really interesting. You know, at first I noticed there were a lot of people in, in different branches of the armed forces in America, but also in other countries, a lot of people in Britain. I've spoken to, to several Royal Marines that I know that are into stoicism, for example, and also other uniformed services, by the way, like the police force and the fire brigade are interested in stoicism as well. I'm not 100% sure, but there are a couple of things that people have mentioned to me are that some of the guys in the military that are drawn to stoicism are the sort of guys that are kind of interested in military history. And so they're kind of interested in, in Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar and stuff like that. You know, there's a bunch of guys that have all seen Gladiator and they've all seen 300 and they just like the history and they like the stories. And then maybe it's part of their education or part of the, like, a hobby to them. And that's their kind of inroad into getting into stoicism. And then there's another aspect of it. I think that's kind of partially true which is that a lot of people have a need for some kind of coping mechanism, like resilience training, we would call it in psychology. A lot of people need a way of coping with stress. But for many people, psychotherapy and self-help are kind of stigmatized, right? A large demographic of people, men and women, perhaps more men, they just won't go anywhere near self-help literature or psychotherapy because they think it's kind of too touchy-feely or airy-fairy or whatever. And stoicism kind of appeals to them because it's a bit more macho or something. It's got this kind of tough guy image. And that appeals to people, but then once they get in it, they get the same concepts and techniques that they would get from CBT anyway. So it allows people who would never really go near therapy and self-help 
to find an alternative path to reach the same benefits that they would get from that literature. So that's another thing that I noticed happening. And then other people have mentioned things like, you know, for a lot of people in the military, the idea of a virtue ethic and the idea of honour and kind of camaraderie and brotherhood or other concepts that seem to appeal to them. I think that's another part of it. And also stoicism from the outset, I wrote an article about this just the other day, actually. Stoicism is full of military metaphors, and it happens to be that a number of important people in the history of Stoicism served in the military or commanded armies. So Marcus Aurelius would be a good example. He spent most of his reign as emperor leading armies and engaged in warfare. So there's a strong military current in his life and also in his thinking. And actually, the whole thing I mentioned earlier, Socrates, it starts with Socrates. Not a lot of people realize this, but Socrates was a veteran of the Peloponnesian War. He'd fought in at least three major battles. He was famous to Athenians as a military hero. He was almost decorated for saving the life of an officer who'd been unhorsed during the Battle of Potidea. But Socrates turned down the award. See, he was being offered an award for valour. And in his trial, in the Apology of Plato, which is arguably the most famous and influential text in ancient philosophy, like it's the big one, Plato's Apology, everybody knew. And in that dialogue, we have Socrates giving his defence speech in court. And what does he do? He brings up his military service. And not only does he bring up his military service, he makes that fundamental to his defence. And also to his defence of philosophy itself as a way of life. And that entails him comparing the practice of philosophy to his military service. He portrays the philosopher as a kind of soldier, and philosophy is requiring self-discipline and courage and the same kind of virtues that he was encouraged to adopt as a hoplite, as an Athenian infantryman. And so he set the ball rolling with this analogy between soldiering and philosophy as a way of life. Then every subsequent generation of philosophers in Greece and Rome were influenced by that analogy that Socrates had set in place. He planted the seed. And so Marcus Aurelius, nearly 600 years later in the Meditations, quotes that very passage from Socrates where he refers to his philosophy of life as resembling his military service. And then Marcus goes on and on about it and keeps bringing up this analogy. So centuries have elapsed, and still philosophers, including Marcus Aurelius, are influenced by this analogy that Socrates was really the first to make. He sowed the seed of it. And so then I think when people in the military read Marcus Aurelius now, or some of the other Stoics, it kind of resonates with them because those guys were soldiers and also because they're drawing analogies between aspects of the what was for them the military way of life and military values and philosophy itself. I'm curious, when you look at Socrates and you talk about Socrates, I know that he was essentially, the, the way that I heard the story, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but was that he was given a choice. He said that he can stop teaching, you know, the Stoicism, that he can stop mm-hmm. teaching his, his version of philosophy because of some issues that arose while he was teaching, or he could be put to death. And he chose death. He said, if I have to stop teaching, then there's basically no sense in living. So Mm -hmm. I choose death. Yeah. I'll tell you what he said about his military service, because 
one of the reasons that it resonated was he says something very dramatic in the speech. So he stands up in front of a jury of 500 men who are on the verge of rioting, like a, a mob in ancient Athens uh, that wasn't unusual. So there's 500 guys there, a lot of them hostile to him, listening to him give this speech. I think two or three times Plato says the crowd had to be calmed down because in response to things that Socrates said, they, they were beginning to get agitated. And so one of the things he says is, look, you guys were all behind me singing my praises when I went out and fought in the Peloponnesian War to defend the city walls of Athens. And you told me that I should face death like, in order to do that, and I should be courageous and unafraid, because it was noble and praiseworthy to risk my life in the service of my country, in the service of my, my nation state, Athens. And now, he said, you're telling me that I'm crazy to risk my life defending philosophy. But Socrates says to them, but I think I'm actually defending something even more important than the city walls themselves. Because without wisdom, truth, and justice, the city of Athens would be worthless. The walls protect the city, but the city itself and its inhabitants would be worthless if they didn't have truth, wisdom, justice, and the other virtues. That's what makes Athens such a great place. So he said, the thing I'm now defending is far more important than what you asked me to defend before. And you all praised me when I went out into the field of battle and risked my life. And yet you're now laughing at me for risking my life in court, when in fact, I believe that I'm doing something far more important now. That was the speech that he gave. Now, whether you agree with him or not, people were, as we say in Britain, gobsmacked by that. They were astounded by the things that he was saying and the paradoxical, the controversial claim that he was making. He was really challenging these people. You know, he was saying, you guys sent me out to die potentially in battle, and I was happy to do it because I believed that it was my duty. And now you're all lining up against me when, in fact, I'm doing something that's actually more important and more praiseworthy, if anything. So he was in this strange position of being a veteran who was admired for his courage, values, and military service. And now, you know, but he'd become a critic, in a sense, of the, the politicians in his society. And he believed, you know, in both instances, you know, he really just wanted to defend Athens and protect the city that he loved. But now he was getting a lot more pushback from people for doing that. And so, you know, there are a number of explanations given about Socrates' attitude. And one of them was that he was an elderly man. He was about 71. And Xenophon, his friend, who was an Athenian general, Socrates also, another odd thing about Socrates, a bit of trivia, Socrates was kind of lower middle class. And so he served as an infantryman. He wasn't an officer, but he was friends with a bunch of Athenian generals. So he has this weird status whereby they consult him about military strategy, tactics, training. And, you know, they seem to really view him as a military expert. And he seems to have actually had quite a lot of training and education in these matters as well. So there are a number of dialogues where he's discussing aspects of military life with uh, famous generals. So he was willing to risk his life because he placed so much importance on philosophy. And actually the consequence of it was that he really 
planted the seed of the, the whole Western philosophical tradition. There were philosophers before Socrates, but Socrates, without a shadow of doubt, completely overshadows them. His death is like a martyrdom, and he he changed the face of Western civilization. It sent shockwaves through the ancient world, and he transformed the whole Greek world, and his legacy continued through ancient Rome as well. So certainly, in a sense, he, he did achieve something very lasting and very profound by taking that stand in court. Today's episode is also sponsored by veteran-owned Alpha Coffee Company. Their premium 100% Arabica coffee is freshly roasted for a bold, delicious flavor. Alpha Coffee supports veteran charities and has donated over 19,000 bags of coffee to deployed troops. They also offer a combinable 10% military discount and 10% off for subscriptions. Taste the Alpha difference. Purchase their coffee today from their online store or via Amazon Prime. Donald, I hate every time we talk because you end up filling up my Amazon cart inadvertently by introducing stuff that I didn't know before. And so um, I'm going to be on Amazon.com purchasing everything I can on Socrates later today. Another thing I want to talk to you about is on the show, a lot of times we talk about mentorship and the importance of it. And you mentioned Marcus Aurelius before. And I know that I think at some point early in Marcus's life, a man named Junius Rusticus gave Marcus a copy of the teachings mm. of Epictetus, And that really shaped Marcus's thoughts to the point of, you know, he thanks Junius Rusticus in the first book of the meditations. And so I want to ask, like, how important was the concept of mentorship, not only to Marcus, but to the Stoics? Oh, yeah, it was far more important than people actually realized. The ancient philosophy to a large extent was certainly in the Hellenistic period. In this time that Stoicism originated, it was very much this idea of a mentoring relationship was very central to it. And you, by the way, just as another bit of trivia, these all these guys you're mentioning were soldiers, right? So Junius Rusticus, we don't know for sure. Um, speculating a little bit, he served in the army, and he was probably a legionary legate. Like, so he would have been in charge of a, a legion in uh, Cappadocia in Turkey. And I think he served under Arian, who was a very senior general. He was the proconsul of Cappadocia. Now, Arian is the guy that wrote down the discourses of Epictetus. So the guy that actually wrote the discourses of Epictetus, we usually say he was a student of Epictetus, but he was an extremely important Roman statesman and general. In fact, he was a military expert on cavalry training and tactics. And uh, some of his books survived down to the present day. And I think Junius Rusticus served under him. And so that book you're talking about that he gave Marcus Aurelius, I suspect probably came straight from the horse's mouth. I think that was a personal copy that he got from Arian himself, the guy that had written it. And I also think Marcus got a sneak peek because Arian writes in a note that the discourses were not intended for publication and he only published them later in life because somebody had already leaked them. So Marcus says he got his copy from Junius Rusticus's private collection, which is kind of puzzling. And I think it's because it hadn't been published at that time. But the time that Marcus is reading that book, like, it, it's possible that other people hadn't seen it and uh, didn't really, a lot of people perhaps weren't aware what Epictetus's teachings were all about 
although they became very famous later as the writings became circulated. So mentoring, another, I'll mention a little bit of trivia about that. The word mentor itself is a name, and it's actually the name of a character in Homer's Odyssey. Um, to cut a long story short, it's basically the goddess Athena disguises herself as she takes the form of a man called Mentor and becomes an advisor to Telemachus and Odysseus. Uh, Telemachus is Odysseus's son. A mentor is the name of a character in Homer and a guise taken by the goddess Athena, the goddess of wisdom, who's a, an advisor in mythology to heroes. And so this mentoring relationship in ancient philosophy, I think is one of the reasons that ancient philosophy had to die. Like it's one of the reasons that it disappears largely or arguably is, is suppressed in the Dark Ages, in the Christine era. And that's because by the time of Marcus Aurelius, the relationship between a philosophy student and their mentor or tutor was almost like a confessional in Christianity. So the student would give their teacher permission to speak frankly and plainly with them and to criticize their character and question them very deeply, uh, moral scrutiny, moral examination of their character. And I, I think that's overlapping with uh, the practice of confession in Christianity. And I think it's part of the reason that the Christian church came into conflict with the schools of philosophy because they didn't want people going both to a philosopher and to a Christian priest, and these two roles kind of clashing or conflicting with one another. And so Marcus actually calls this therapy. Like he uses the word therapeia in Greek, the word therapy, to describe what he did with Junius Rusticus. Junius Rusticus persuaded him that he needed moral correction and therapeia. And the ancient Stoics wrote books on therapy, which are unfortunately largely lost. So Chrysippus, the third head of the Stoic school, wrote a famous book called On Therapeutics, which is on psychotherapy. And uh, we don't have it, but we do have a book called On the Diagnosis and Cure of the Soul's Passions, an obscure book by Galen, Marcus Aurelius's court physician. And Galen was a know-it-all and a polymath. He wasn't a Stoic. He was kind of eclectic. But he'd read the Stoics. He was a bookworm, and he'd read Chrysippus. And so we get Galen's kind of more eclectic version that quotes the Stoics a little bit, but maybe isn't identical to what they did. And Galen very clearly describes this uh, philosophical therapy as a type of one-to-one -one mentoring. He says you should find an older, wiser man. And he says it's better if you find somebody that's a little bit older because then you can see from the evidence of their life history whether they've actually exhibited wisdom and virtue or not. He says with a younger person, it's harder to know for sure what their character is like. But for someone who's lived a little bit longer, there's more evidence. So you can arrive at a better appraisal of whether they have wisdom and virtue or not. And then he says you should be completely honest with them and allow them to critique and examine your character. And he says the reason that this is necessary is because we have blind spots for our own character. We're, we're very poor judges of our own character. Like in the Bible, it says you can see a tiny speck of wood in your brother's eye, but you can't see a huge plank of wood in your own eye. Galen quotes one of Aesop's fables that says everyone is born with two sacks hanging around their neck, and one of them, a huge big sack, hangs in front of your neck. 
and it contains everybody else's character flaws. And it's right there under your nose all the time, and you can see it everywhere you go. And Aesop says, but there's another sack, a little tiny one, that hangs behind your neck, and it contains all of your own character flaws. And you can never really get a perspective on it or see it, but everybody else can see it very clearly. And Galen tells that story as a metaphor for why we have blind spots and why we need sometimes to have another person to observe our behavior and our character and give us feedback. And that is philosophical mentoring. And it seems to be what Junius Rusticus was probably doing with Marcus Aurelius and, you know, probably what Stoics did throughout the whole history of their school. So, Don, I know for me, it wasn't like this uh, life altering, uh, life changing or, you know, anything drastic that happened when I got into Stoicism. I simply was shared the Marcus Aurelius book, Meditations, and I started reading it and that put me on my path. Can you share a little bit about how you got into Stoicism and was it an event or was it just kind of a happenstance like with me? Gosh, let me think. I guess I actually read Plato first. When I was a young guy, my father passed away, unfortunately, when I was quite young. I was about 14 or something. And my father was a Freemason, right? Which is very common in Scotland, in the part of Scotland where I grew up. Um, All of my friends' fathers were Freemasons. So my father had this philosophy of life, which is based partly on the Old Testament, but it's also based on Hellenistic philosophy. And he didn't talk a lot about it, but when he died, he left behind his books on Freemasonry, not much else. And I read those books and they were full of references to Plato and Pythagoras. And so I was quite puzzled by them. They were quite confusing and and the cardinal virtues and stuff like that. So that's kind of where I first got my taste of these ideas and more fundamentally, just the general idea that someone might have a kind of moral philosophy of life that gave them direction and, and acted as a guide. So I went away looking for something similar, and I studied all different religious texts. I studied Hinduism and Buddhism and a lot of kind of esoteric stuff. And I kind of got into studying apocryphal Christian stuff, Gnostic Christianity. And that led me to philosophy, because the early Christians were heavily influenced by Platonism. And, you know, cut long story short, I got more and more into philosophy. I went to university and I studied philosophy in Aberdeen, but I still hadn't really found what I was looking for because it's very unusual for undergraduate students to study Stoicism. It's, it's one of the few major historical schools of philosophy that they don't teach on most philosophy degrees. And when I ask my friends that are academics why that is, they say, well, look, the Stoics just take ideas from Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and other earlier philosophers, and they're not original in that respect. I mean, all they really do is to figure out the practical application of those ideas in everyday life in order to help people cope and live in more fulfilled ways. So why would anybody want to study that, is what they say. And, you know, obviously that's kind of paradoxical because that's precisely why everybody else wants to study the Stoics because they focus on developing the practical consequences of these philosophical ideas. So it wasn't until I finished my degree. I spent four years studying philosophy. I studied Plato and Aristotle at university. But it wasn't until after I graduated that I really began to study the Stoics. I had time to study the Stoics in more depth. 
And as soon as I did, I realized that that was what I'd been looking for all along. I took a four-year-long detour, basically, where I studied every other school of philosophy except Stoicism. And then eventually, at the end of it, I realized that the one that I'd skipped over was actually the one that I'd been looking for all along. And I was training in psychotherapy at the time, so I saw the connection that Stoicism was the inspiration for cognitive therapy. And then, boom, everything just kind of came together for me and it all slotted into place. And that was over 25 years ago. And I'm still studying Stoicism, completely immersed in it. You know, So I guess permanently, once and for all, it all just kind of clicked into place for me at that point in my life. What in your mind is the message of Stoicism? What would you say to somebody who's looking to get into Stoicism and maybe, you know, learn a little more about it? What is the biggest message that you can take away from it? These two aspects of Stoicism, one is the moral philosophy, and then closely related to that, the consequence is all of the techniques that it gives us for building emotional resilience. So people are usually attracted to Stoicism as a form of therapy or self-help because it helps them to cope with stress. But then they usually stay with it and get into it long term because of the the values, like the moral philosophy, the the worldview that they find in it. And so I'd sum up, you know, rather than the techniques and stuff, I'd focus on the core of stoicism, the virtue ethic. And the thing I'd say about that is, you know, the main thing we get from stoicism is this idea that the stoics had the courage to suggest that you know, basically the prevailing values of ancient Athens, ancient Rome, and, you know, the same would be true of the society that we live in today. The prevailing values of our society are all the smoke and mirrors. Like they're all back to front and upside down and all wrong. All the consumerism, the celebrity culture, the narcissism, the hedonism, the materialism, the egotism, you know, all the, all the good isms that we get from the media and the whole culture that surrounds us, the Stoics fundamentally wanted to say to people, it's all a con, it's all smoke and mirrors, and it won't make you happy or fulfilled. In order to really flourish, you need to see through all the smoke and mirrors of society and realize that true happiness really does come from within, and it comes from taking more responsibility for your own choices and your own values and placing more value, placing absolute value on your own character and realizing that external events are relatively unimportant in a sense. And what matters far more is the use that we make of them. So money won't make you happy. What matters is the use that you make either of money or of poverty, health, sickness, You know, what matters is that you make of these experiences in life. And that's what constitutes true happiness and and true fulfillment. And they're challenging us to realize that, you know, if we're not careful, we've all fallen into a trap of looking too much outside of ourselves and focusing too much on external things that aren't even directly under our own control. And in doing that, we neglect to take responsibility for the things that are actually under our control, our values, our intentions, our ways of thinking about life. So this is what I would say the, the take-home message it really is from Stoicism. Like it's a wake-up call. And it's the same thing. The Stoics are very interested in the contemplation of death. Um, they think it's potentially a very liberating thing for us to radically accept 
the fact of our own mortality. Because often when people have a brush for, with death, that's the thing that makes them reevaluate all the priorities in life. You know, they maybe think, oh, perhaps it wasn't as important to watch all those episodes of Friends or, you know, maybe uh, winning that argument with the guy at work didn't really matter all that much. You know, when we have a, a brush with our own mortality, we suddenly start to question things much more deeply and reappraise our values. And the Stoics want us to do that sooner rather than later because they think that's the secret to really achieving freedom, uh, psychological uh, freedom in life. So the, the doctrine that they teach is virtue or moral wisdom is the only true good and that we need to learn to focus more on what's happening inside and the way that we go about approaching the events that befall us in life. That's hugely interesting to me because I was listening to a podcast and it was this uh, gentleman was on there and he talked about death and and they asked him what his viewpoint on death was. And he kind of said that we're here on this earth to learn a lesson and that we want to go back to wherever it was that that we came from and different religions and different philosophies have their own idea of where that is. But, you know, he essentially said that we're here almost to suffer in this life. And as soon as we're here and as soon as we die, that that's when we realize true peace. And that's when we find true peace because we get to go back to, you know, where our home is, whatever you want to call that home. One of the reasons I think a lot of agnostics and atheists are into Stoicism is because the Stoics don't really believe in an afterlife. They're fairly open-minded about it, but they think we need to achieve enlightenment and peace now, here, on this earth. Like, uh, they think it could happen right now, you know, if only we were willing. We don't have to wait to be transported to an afterlife or another realm. It's all about our own values. It's all about our mindset and our attitude. I would say that the Stoics, to put it in modern language, think that we're all walking about in a trance most of the time. And what the Stoics want is for us to snap out of it, wake up to reality. You know, Marcus Aurelius at one point talks about, it's as if we're walking about in a, a dream, as if we're like men asleep, you know, and philosophy wants to shake us, wake us up, get us to, to really see, you know, what's going on, really see how we are living our own lives and to take more responsibility for it. And the Stoics are confident that if we can do that, then we'll experience a kind of epiphany and a kind of enlightenment right now, you know, while we're still walking about on this earth. Thank you for that, Donald. And for our listeners, if, you know, anything you've heard today has kind of piqued your interest, I highly recommend Donald's book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. You know, there's a lot of leadership books out there. There's a lot of self-help books out there. And, you know, it's such a huge industry. A lot of it's garbage. And Donald's book is this great, like, amalgamation of biography of Marcus Aurelius, psychology, about cognitive behavioral therapy, and it's about the philosophy of stoicism. So it's an easily readable book, and it's full of great insights, full of great tips. And again, Donald, like it, it's really helped me. So the question I'm about to ask you, so you're not allowed to say your book, is if our listeners are interested in stoicism, what are a few more books that you would recommend oh, yeah. to better understand the philosophy? Well, listen, if you want to learn about Stoicism, like you can read the classics. Like most people get on perfectly well reading Marcus Aurelius's meditations. That's the first thing that most people read. 
And the only advice I'd give, obviously, people go online and get free public domain translations, but those are usually from the Victorian era, basically, so they're a little bit harder to read. Get a modern translation of Marcus Aurelius by Robin Hard or Gregory Hayes or two of the most popular ones and read that. Like It's easy to read. And then if you like that, you know, you might want to read the handbook or Encharidion of Epictetus, which is very short. Like It's just a bunch of sayings. It's easy to read. If you really like that, you might go and read the discourses of Epictetus, which is a bit longer. And then maybe read Seneca's Letters to Lysilius, which is longer, but it's beautifully written. And another book that people get a lot from, find pretty accessible. The one other classic text that I would tell everyone to read, and I mentioned it earlier, is Plato's Apology, which is not Stoic. It's a precursor of Stoicism, but it was a big influence in the Stoics. It's rare for me to say something like this, Joe, but I would really urge anyone that has a few hours to do some reading to read Plato's Apology, because it's one of the most magnificent texts in the history of the Western canon. It's a philosophical masterpiece, and it's beautifully written, and it's not that long either. So I would say to people, look, if you're looking for something to read and you've got a few hours, it will be time well spent just to go and and read the Apology. Some of Plato's other dialogues are a little bit of a slog to get through, um, but the Apology is not very long, and it's, it's very dramatic, so it's definitely a good thing to read. And then in terms of modern books, Ryan Holiday's Obstacles the Way and the Daily Stoic are really good books that are very modern. A lot of people read um, Massimo Colucci's How to Be a Stoic, Bill Irvine's A Guide to the Good Life. These are some of the best-selling books on Stoicism. And also Ward Farnsworth's book, The Practicing Stoic, is another one of my favorite modern books on Stoicism. And also for people in the military, Nancy Sherman who is a professor at the, the Naval Academy. She's at Georgetown University now. She had a book called Stoic Warriors, but she's got a, another book that's just coming out in a few months called Stoic Wisdom. I got a review copy of it, so I've already read it. And it's a really good introduction to Stoicism by Professor Nancy Sherman. Um, it's more aimed at general readers. It's a trade publication. And there's a lot of kind of references to things like PTSD and moral injury and you know military issues in that book. That would be another interesting one, I think, for people to read when it comes out. I'd like to also add to your list a book that you've talked about before is Thoughts of a Philosophical Fighter Pilot yeah. by James Stockdale, which is about Admiral Stockdale's time in, in captivity as a POW for eight years and how the teachings of Epictetus and the philosophy of Stoicism helped him get through that. And then For our listeners, I just want to show you how like this is an example of how a connection with Donald Robertson can lead to a book problem because everything that he's recommended, I have gone out and purchased and I haven't regretted it. So just thank you for that, Donald. Oh, yeah, I'm sure you'll enjoy reading all of those books. You know, I think the privilege of teaching people about stoicism, it would be like if somebody said they were really into Elizabethan drama, but they'd never heard of the Shakespeare guy. And you are the one to say, well, you might want to go and check out Hamlet then if you're into that kind of stuff. So I feel like that about Stoicism. People are into psychology and self-help and they haven't read Marcus Aurelius. Like it feels like it's an honor, it's a privilege for me to go, you want to check out Marcus Aurelius? Because I'm introducing them to something, same with Plato's Apology, that I know is a masterpiece, you know, that I'm, I'm sure they're going to find not only rewarding, but 10, 20, 30 years later, after having read Marcus Aurelius or having read about Socrates, 
they're probably still going to remember some of the things in that book, which is not something you find with modern self-help books as much. These are books that will sear themselves on your brain, potentially, for the rest of your life. Thanks again, Donald, for your time today. And uh, I think this was a, a really, a really great episode. And it's going to help introduce a lot of military leaders to stoicism who haven't heard of it already. Awesome. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you both very much for inviting me along. Thank you again to all our listeners for joining us on another episode of From the Green Notebook. Check us out at fromthegreennotebook.com, where you can download past episodes, read some of our previous blog posts, and sign up for our monthly reading list and Sunday email. If you enjoy the podcast so far, please subscribe and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. And follow us on Twitter at FTG Notebook, as well as Instagram and Facebook. You can find us by just searching From the Green Notebook. So this is Jacob Goronsky signing off. And hope you tune in to our next episode. I came from the mud. There's dirt on my hands. Strong like a tree. There's roots where I stand. Oh, I've been running from the law. Hope they won't shoot me down soon. Hope they won't shoot me down soon.